Ramble. I don't really like doing chores around the house, I'm going to be honest with you, and I especially used to hate doing laundry. It was just one of my more tedious tasks. It takes so much time, and I often feel tempted to not even bother sorting out my clothes. But I've been trying to motivate myself to get a lot more organized, and I finally found a way to make doing my chores so much more interesting, so much more engaging, and that's by listening to audiobooks on Audible. You guys know me, there is nothing like playing a good psychological thriller. So obviously, that's what I've been listening to. I'm currently listening to The Housemaid by Frida McFadden. The main character, Millie, is out on parole and she's desperate for a job. She doesn't have any money. She's living out of her car and she gets this opportunity to be this rich family's housemaid. Millie agrees even though there's just something really strange about the Winchesters. Especially the wife, Nina. She just seems to love finding ways to make Millie's life very difficult. The family is hiding something and Millie is hiding something and there's just so much tension between Millie and the husband. It's one of those stories that you can't stop listening to and I can't wait to finish it and start the next audiobook in this series. But if Thriller is not your thing, don't worry. Audible lets you pick from thousands of titles to find the perfect soundtrack to your day. You can find audiobooks from any genre, fiction, nonfiction, wellness, self-help. But they also have podcasts like this one, guided wellness programs, comedy, and originals. Living life without using Audible is like eating food with no seasoning. Sure, you still get your nutrients in, but it's missing that extra flavor, you know? So if you want to spice up your day, I highly recommend Audible. Audible members can keep one title a month to keep from the entire catalog. New members can try audible now free for 30 days visit audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 that's audible.com slash rotten or text rotten to 500 500 to try audible free for 30 days bada bing bada boom welcome to this week's main episode of rotten mango i'm your host stephanie sue <laughs> I'm irrelevant. <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about a case that happened in California. Let me drop you off in the middle of the crime. This takes place in the middle of Los Angeles, Hollywood, where dreams go to die. This is the exact location. We've got a little nine-year-old boy by the name of Walter Collins that vanishes. Now, Christine, his mom... She starts freaking out because he doesn't come home one day from being out and playing. And she's like, this is weird. This is really unlike Walter. Like, he doesn't do stuff like this. He's a quiet kid. He's reserved. So she immediately heads to the police station. And she's like, you got to help me. My son is missing. I don't know what to do. Now, the police are like, wow, Mrs. Collins, not you again. Now, here's some pertinent backstory. Mr. Collins, Walter's dad, also named Walter, was a pretty big criminal. So they thought, OK, well, he's in jail right now. What do you want? Do you want us to get him out of jail? Because that's not happening. He was also working with the police as a police informant at the time that Walter Jr. went missing. So, I mean, we're thinking, wow, this is alarming. That's a lot of people that probably hate the Collins family that want to get back at Mr. Collins. So maybe they kidnap his nine year old kid. And that's exactly what the police are thinking they tell her listen lady it was probably a very angry criminal that took your son that didn't want your husband to start talking to the police we think that you will get some sort of letter about a ransom or some directions on how to get your son back maybe you'll even get his finger as proof you know so they just casually brush the whole um. thing off call us when you got a letter call us when you get some contacts from these criminals that have your nine-year-old little boy so Christine, being the fearless mom that she is, she starts going out looking. She's asking people. She's talking to people, begging to get information on her nine-year-old boy, Walter. She finally gets the attention of the national news. And now the entire country is outraged. Where the hell is baby Walter? And why do the police not care? So suddenly, now the police are like, okay, we got to act like we're doing something. So they start following these leads all over the country. Yeah, I saw him with a new family. I think I saw that little boy standing at the corner of this street wearing just newspaper 
Like clothing made out of newspapers. I don't know. So they start going down these rabbit holes. It wasn't until five months later there was a break in the case. They found Walter. They found him. But he was all the way in Illinois. On the other side of the country from California. What is he doing there? So the police, they pick him up and they say, Hey, little boy, what's your name? I'm Walter Collins. So they're thinking, well, I'll be darned. We did some good work. I mean, it's been five months, but we found him. So they tell Christine, hey, good news. We found your son. Bad news. You have to pay for him to get to California. So you're not going to see him unless you have the money, like cough up the money. Now, back then in the 20s, transportation was not cheap. So she's thinking it's going to be months. So finally, she gets her hands on the money. She gives it to the police. They start transporting Walter to California and she's stoked. She's going to be reunited. All the press, the media, they're excited. Let's document the whole thing. The day arrives. Walter hops out of the car and Christine's smile just starts slowly fading. She turns to one of the police officers. I don't... I don't think that's my son. Well, sure he is. What? No, but his face doesn't even look like my son. Well, it's been a while, Christine. He's a growing boy, so of course, during the past couple of months, he's going to have grown. His face is going to change. That's what happens when you grow. You say five months, no? We'll add a couple extra months because, okay. you know, it took her a while to get the money. But that's the thing, officer. He's even shorter than my son. Like, I mean, I get it. Maybe he didn't grow or even he stayed the same or he grew a little, but he's he's shorter than my son. What did the police do? Listen, Mrs. Collins, this is your boy. Why don't you, quote unquote, try him out for a few weeks? <laughs> if you really don't think it's your son, let us know then. He's just different because he's been, you know, alone, if not kidnapped for a while, months. He was going through it. That's a lot for a nine-year-old boy. So go try him out, test him out at home, you know, let us know. So for the next three weeks, she's living with this boy and every day her suspicion is getting worse and worse. Why is he so different? Walter is so polite and reserved and this kid is wild. Why does he keep calling me ma? Walter only called me mother. She goes back to the police and says, listen, I can't do it anymore. I'm slamming my fist on the table. This isn't my son. You need to go get this boy home because someone's missing him. And you need to go find my son because Walter's still out there. Ma'am, calm down. Let us run some very advanced, innovative, technological, psychologically supreme, logically indestructible tests on the boy to determine if this indeed is your son or not. How long have you been living with him? Three weeks. Okay, well, let's try this. They drive, quote unquote, Walter to the edge of town and they say, okay, now find your way home. Bye. <laughs> and he makes it back to Christine's house. See, now, ma'am, would not your son be able to find your house when he's not your son? Clearly, this is your son. He found your house. If he's really from Illinois and he's not your son, he wouldn't even know this town like that. We'll do one more test logically indestructible you know it just makes a lot of sense we're gonna put walter into a room and when we open the door we're gonna let this dog in walter's dog and if walter's dog starts rushing to him licks his face and jumps on top of him then that's uh that's walter because you know dogs she's like what but she he's been living with this dog for three weeks because he's been living with me for the past three weeks so the tests prove to the police that this indeed is walter so they say, take your child and leave us alone. Now, Christine, being more competent, she goes to the dentist's office and has them study new Walter's teeth and compare them to the dental records of her Walter. And they're not a match. 
So once again, she finds herself at the police station. Listen, here's the results. And they tell her, you think that we don't know what you've been doing all along with your little games, playing your little mind games? You don't want to be a mom since your husband is in jail. You want us to pay for your child. You want us to take your child. On top of that, you hate the police. Of course you do. Your husband's a criminal. Now he's forced to work as an informant. You hate us. So you want to make us look like idiots. That's what you're doing. Did your husband put you up to this? I bet he did. And they immediately admit her into a psychiatric ward. They tell everyone this woman right here is crazy. She's bonkers. She's a danger to society and to her child. She's a bad mom. And they spoon feed her a ton of medications that she didn't need. Jeez. But this <laughs> is a all bizarre, bizarre story. Bizarre story. But this gets even more bizarre because this is only just a piece of the puzzle to some serial killers in Los Angeles. Full source notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com, but yes, there's a book on it. It's called The Road Out of Hell by Anthony Flacco and Jerry Clark. This is a really good book. So the author worked with Jerry Clark, which is the son of Sanford, which right now doesn't mean anything, but he is one of the key players in this entire plot. He's also a victim. They were able to provide family documents, photos, letters, notes, personal anecdotes about who his father was. And I think in a case like this, where it's a little over 100 years old, it's really important to get these things because if you look at all these other sources, I mean, everything's kind of up in the air with this case. So let's start with a guy by the name of Gordon Stewart Norcott. They called him Uncle Stewart. We're just going to call him Stew because he's like a bad bowl of stew, a bad soup. He was born in Canada to mom Louise and to dad George. Now, he did have an older sister by the name of Winnie who was 18 years older than he was. That's a big age gap. So much so, in fact, that um, there was a big rumor that was going around that allegedly even the mom would later kind of confirm that Winnie and her dad, so Winnie, the older sister, and her dad were doing some incestuous stuff. Winnie gets pregnant, and they believe that Stu is actually Winnie's child. Allegedly. Allegedly. Now, the other side of this story is that, no, 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 Stu is actually Louise's child and George's child. Like, just a non-incentuous, non-rape child. Just a regular relationship. They just decided 18 years later to have another kid. And Louise, the mom, she was heartbroken. She didn't want another kid. She was good. She thought that, you know, raising kids was over for her. So while she was pregnant with Stu, he, she started drinking. She started trying to throw herself off of pieces of furniture to not follow to term with this baby so it's kind of like complex whether he is a product of incest and rape but either way he's born and it's almost like this flip is switched in mother louise she went from hating this unborn child the whether it was is flipped yeah the switch is flipped you say flip is switched, <laughs> flip is switched. <laughs> <laughs> the flip is switched okay whether it was her unborn child or winnie's she went from hating this baby to this is the love of my life she did not want Stu out of her sight even when he got older they slept in the same bed she never let him out of the room she babied the shirts out of him she said oh my precious boy that was her favorite saying my precious boy my precious boy Anytime he came home from school, she would take his coat, lick his baby hairs out of his face, fix him up his favorite cup of tea, and just like waited around him like a Michelin star waiter. Meanwhile, Stu's acting like he hates it, but he also never stopped her from doing everything for him. It's like he liked it. He liked the comfort of it, you know? Mm -hmm. The guy was like really enjoying it. She also dressed him up in girls' clothes until he was about 16 years old. 
this is, I think it was her choice that he later adapted. So he loved wearing more quote unquote feminine clothes even as he got older. Um, he always wore like really fancy suits as well. Which honestly powered to him because back in the day, I mean, he got bullied for it. He was bullied incessantly for wearing, quote unquote, more feminine clothes. And I keep saying, quote unquote, more feminine because in like the 1920s, more feminine is just a little color in your suit. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Why are you dressed like a little girl? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I do think that he was wearing full on dresses. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know how much of it was his choice. How much was it was, you know pushed onto him by Louise. We're not really sure. Then when he gets to high school, he earns a new nickname, the ape man, because he had that much body hair. People said if you were to look at Stu naked, it's like looking at an animal. That's not my words. I've never seen him naked. Listen, people are mean. Don't listen to them. I feel a lot of sympathy for him up until this point. So after high school, he decides to pursue his passions. Now, this seems privileged, right? His family, at least, he could do whatever he wanted. He didn't necessarily have to go to war. He didn't have to go to work. He starts becoming a classical pianist. He loved playing for large crowds. I mean, he kept his hands perfectly manicured pristine condition so much so that at home his mom never let him lift a finger because my precious boy's hands my precious boy's piano fingers he loved the adrenaline of everyone clapping for him praising him that was his jam now it doesn't pay well but his parents are just bankrolling his entire life even bought him a super fancy convertible car back then i mean still today but back then those were like the it cars to even be in one was like a rare occurrence like whoa whoa, whoa, this is like a once in a lifetime thing come on this is crazy now Stu loved giving rides in this car to people that he wanted to get close to and they were always little boys underage boys eight to twelve year old boys even when Stu was 18 19 at the time and mysteriously out of nowhere the family packs up their bags they move out of Canada to Los Angeles California in the United States Now, it's said that they moved for opportunity. Some say they moved for better work. Allegedly, they moved because Stu had either pissed off the parents of a young boy's, you know, mom and dad. Or done something that he might be facing some big consequences for. So that's kind of up in the air. They skedaddle out of town. They land in Hollywood. And immediately, Stu is like, this is my place. I belong here. I am one with this place. Like, he's ready to shine. People are praising him for his unique sense of style. They loved his car. He just felt very L.A. He continued his little habit of, you want to get in my car, little boy? I got a little puppy in here. They would get in the car. He'd spend all his time with them. Now, here's the disclaimer. Stu is gay, right? But that's not a problem at all. The problem is that he's a pedophile. And pedophiles come in all shapes and sizes. So that's that's just a little disclaimer. Now, he starts getting really comfortable. So he starts making a best friend in L.A. Now, this best friend, he's the same age as Stu. They start Mm -hmm. hanging out, going to all these jazz clubs. But he gets more interested. Stu gets more interested in this best friend's underage brother, Philip. He uses his friend to constantly be around him and then eventually starts sexually assaulting Philip multiple times a week. How old was Philip? I think he was like 10. Wow. Now, Philip was confused. He was terrified. He didn't tell his parents. And I think even now, children that's like the scariest thing is that children get confused. They don't know what's going on. But back then, it was even less talked about. And back then, I mean, the norm is like, hey, you got to be nice to strangers. Like, you got to be polite. Because that shows how, you know, well-classed and well-mannered this family is. Now it's like you yell at strangers, poke them in the eyeballs, and jab them in the right, you know, tit. It's really intense now, which I love. So (laughs) Philip is, he's just like, I don't know what to do. I think that this is normal. 
Stu is telling me it's normal, but it seems like the parents, I mean, they kind of start catching on to something. Hey, this is weird. They keep an eye out. And eventually, finally, little Philip tells them what he had been through. And they call the police. They have Stu arrested, but for whatever reason, the charges were dropped. Whether Stu scared Philip out of pressing charges, or maybe he even scared the parents, because even today, you know, there's so much shame around rape and homosexuality. Which is bizarre, but back then it was it was a lot more. It was so intense. So Stu walks out of this whole ordeal with a clean criminal record. But his friends are like, wait a minute. You're kind of nasty. You're kind of disgusting. You raped a little boy. They stopped being his friend. And now Stu is dejected. He's like, what do I do? I can't even get hired to play the piano at these places because nobody wants to get in my car. Nobody wants me to perform on their stage. I mean, I am depressed. I feel like everything in my life is getting a little bit more innovative, is getting a little bit more up to the times. And the one thing that has always let me down since I became a full-fledged, somewhat adult is traditional banking. I just don't understand. Sometimes I have to sit on a phone call for like three hours trying to talk to a person about, hey, why did you guys charge me this? Why are there so many fees that are attached? Why is your app not working? And then I heard about Current. And if you guys watch my YouTube channel, you guys know that I'm obsessed with them because Current is a technology company that lets you help manage your money on your phone. And they believe that banking should be more accessible, more affordable, no surprises, no minimum balances. I feel like everything's so transparent. I know exactly what I'm getting when I'm banking with Current and they have amazing benefits. So for example, you can actually do no fees on over 40,000 in-network all-point ATMs in the United States. So remember that feeling where you're like, oh man, I valeted and I need like $2. So you go to the ATM and you're like trying to take out $5 in cash, but the ATM's like, hey, we're going to charge you like $3 with current. You don't really have to worry about that. They also have easy to create saving goals. They give you the ability to round up purchases to save extra change. I love this because I kind of justify in my head. Well, technically, I'm saving money by buying this shirt, no? Now, here's the coolest thing. If you guys have a current premium account, which is what I have, you actually get direct deposit up to two days early. You can get your paychecks on Wednesdays. Imagine having that hit your bank on a Wednesday. That's like a midweek surprise. You also have overdraft up to $100 without any overdraft fees. For a limited time right now, we've actually partnered with Current to give away $1,000. That's right, $1,000. So Current is going to give away $250 to four listeners of our show, and all you have to do is download the Current app and enter our code ROTTEN during sign-up for a chance to win. Remember, that's code ROTTEN during sign-up. Winners will be awarded soon, so don't wait okay download that current app sign up in less than two minutes and enter code rotten for a chance to win visit current.com rotten for full terms and conditions he also went into this spiral where it seemed like he had he had gotten out of a breakup everyone's describing him as like a heartbroken man looking at pictures of philip holding on to the things that philip had given him I mean, it's weird. You are a rapist, not a broken up boyfriend. None of this is making sense. So Stu sits his parents down, who, by the way, know all of this. Okay, they know all of his sick little interests and little boys and uh, his arrests. They know about everything. And he tells them, hey, I need a good chunk of your life savings. I'm going to open up a business. What? What kind of business? A chicken farm. I'm going to sell eggs at the farmer's market. So I, I found a three-acre plot of land in Wineville, California. 
There is literally not even a house on there. It's just desert. We're going to build a little house. We're going to build a bunch of separate detached chicken coops and start making money. Bada bing, bada boom. Like super easy. Let's do it. <laughs> Mom's like, wow, son, you really are a smart one. Okay. So even after all of that, they buy him a nice plot of land and they start having to get to building. Now, they don't want to spend even more money on workers. So they call up Winnie, Stu's older sister, allegedly his mom. And says, hey, Winnie, you got two sons. Why don't we have them work on the farm? I'm going to enroll them in school in America because, you know, the education's better here. It'll be better for them. They can work on the farm on the weekends. It'll teach them to be real men. They're going to have a United States education. And who knows, Winnie? One day, I'll pass the farm down on to them when I'm over it. By the way, Stu's like only 20. <laughs> now, Winnie's all for this idea, but she had a favorite son. Young Kenneth, her favorite. The idea of letting young Kenneth out of her sight made her nervous. Now, it's said that Winnie was very similar to her own mom, Louise. So you know how Louise babied the crap out of Stu? It's said that Winnie mm -hmm. was doing that with Kenneth. Like, they just had very similar personalities. So Winnie's like, you know what? Not Kenneth. What if you just take Sanford, my other boy? He needs to be taught some discipline anyway. So Stu's like, perfect, I'm going to go to Canada, bring him back down into the United States. So Stu comes up to pick up Sanford from Winnie's house, and Sanford already knew that it was going to be bad. He's 13 years old. Now, Winnie, his mom, and her brother, Stu, this is his uncle, Uncle Stu, are the duo from hell. They have the same personality. They also have the same personality as Sanford's grandma, which is just lying through their teeth. Crazy temper. The only time that they get emotional is if it's something bad happening to them. They don't care about anyone else. They love to bully you until your self-esteem is next to nothing. Like, these are the types of people that he's dealing with. So, of course, he's like, wow, I'm going to leave my mom, who at least loves me a little bit, to Uncle Stu, of all people? I mean, this is the worst timing of it all. And he's mad at his mom. Like, what kind of person just, like, offers up their 13-year-old kid to farm work? I don't get it. I'm 13. I got, I got all my friends here. Why should I go? And Winnie turns around just disgusted at him. You don't know what hard work is. You're a spoiled little bastard. You don't know what real struggle is. You need to go learn what every boy needs to learn. So he's forced into the car with Stu, with the majority of his belongings. So he's like, okay, I don't know when I'm going to come back, okay? I don't know. And when he finally makes it to the border, Stu put on this whole show. Because they don't have a visa. <laughs> so Stu's like, a family member is dying. Literally as I speak. Dying dead in the hospital bed. This little boy right here, 13-year-old Sanford, he's got to pay his respect. Isn't that right, Sanford? Right. Dying, I tell you. So the border officer's like, okay. They let them in from Canada to the United States. And technically, even though the officers let them in, Sanford is there illegally. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have papers. Mm -hmm. The car ride itself showed Sanford enough about his future. He was like, this, I already know where this is going. It's not going to be easy breezy at the chicken ranch, the chicken coop. I mean, Stu would go through these phases during the car ride where he would go from super excited, frantic, almost just ready to do this, ready to do that, all of these ideas. And then slowly, he would just get irritable, miserable for a few hours, and then switch back to completely frantic and excited. They would drive with the top down in his convertible, and Stu loved to talk real low, real quiet while the wind is just gushing at their ears. And if Sanford doesn't hear him because of the wind, he would get on the back of the head. 
and just the way he talked, Stu, was despicable. I mean, he talked about how money creates whores and all women are whores. So that's, that's great. Before they get to the ranch, they stop at the grandparents' house. Now, these are the literal parents of Winnie, which means these are Sanford's literal grandparents. This is kind of important. And they treat him like absolute garbage. Louise, the grandma, she loved slapping her grandson from cheek to cheek as hard as she could. Not like the cute, like, oh, my little baby. But like, why would you bring this clumsy oaf into my house and then just literally slap him with all of her strength straight on the cheek until it was red and stinging with pain? She gave Sanford a whole speech. You are here because Stu needs this place up and running. Now you listen to me. You're going to do all the dirtiest work because I want Stuart's hands free of calluses for playing the piano. We will deliver a piano to the farm so we can practice. And every time I go to the farm, I'm going to check Stu's hands. If I find one callus, it'll be you that pays. What in the world is this? This is her grandson. Yeah. <laughs> I thought grandparents love the grandchild more than their actual child. Yeah. You know, but she's like, no, my baby, my precious boy. So the ranch is in the desert part of Los Angeles, not the beautiful greens that you might imagine, but a lot more sand. I mean, they had a three acre plot of land, which is big, but it's not like Picton Farm big. This is kind of important. They had a well with a pump, but pretty much nothing else. They had to build a house, chicken coops, everything from scratch. In the meantime, they're living in a tent. Working as quickly as possible, Grandpa George and Sanford, they build a two bedroom box, you know, with a living room, a kitchen. No, one of the bedrooms is not for Sanford. Either the couch or the chicken coop is typically where Sanford sleeps with the chickens sometimes. I mean, it's really bad. They build a bunch of individual chicken coops, little sheds for the chickens. They would make about two chicken coops a day. So, I mean, they're working really fast. Started filling it with chicken so that they can make money selling the eggs. Say chicken one more time. <laughs> and since the day that he got there, the conditions were already tough. He was forced to work 12-hour days doing all of the heavy lifting. If Stu hated the way that he talked, walked, smiled, or anything that Stanford really couldn't control, he would just get punched to the ground. Punched until he was knocked unconscious. It got to the point where Stanford knew how to pretend to be unconscious. He's like, okay, anytime this guy punches me, I'm going to get on the ground and kind of convulse a little bit because Stu really didn't care for damage. He really cared about seeing the victim shake in pain. With someone like Stu, Sanford said he knew quickly that personal dignity was something that you can't afford. The idea is you let them hurt you a little bit so that they leave you alone after. Sanford would cook three meals a day, Stu would sit down, eat, and then he would feed the leftover scraps to Sanford. Now, this is a growing boy. He's 13 years old, so he actually stopped growing. He was malnourished. He was pale, underweight. He started losing his hair, like losing his teeth. I mean, the kid was not doing okay. He wasn't getting enough sleep. He was working 12 plus hours a day. He wasn't eating enough. It was clear that nothing that Stu had promised would be happening. Stu would never enroll him in school. Are you kidding? Because he needed to be on the farms tending to the chickens. He had to slaughter all of the chickens himself. He's 13. Does the mother know any of this? It feel, according to the book, it seems like yes. Wow. Sanford was beat every single day. Every single day, either hit on the head, sucker punched, punched till he lost consciousness, kicked, you know, burned, like just truly beat. And he would always drag him into the chicken coops. I feel like this is an extra level of just humiliation. He would just drag him where the chicken poop is and just beat him up until he was on the ground. And then within a few weeks, the sexual assault started. 
Stu would sodomize him with his own body, but also with foreign objects. There were rusty farm equipments that he would use, wooden planks that had splinters. It would later show that Sanford had permanent damage to his rectum due to these frequent abuses. And it happened practically every night. And while Stu was raping Sanford, he would say, hit me. He wanted Sanford to hit him. But if Sanford refused, he'd be beat because how dare you say no to me? But if Sanford hit Uncle Stu, Uncle Stu would slowly get mad. He'd say, hit me again. But you could just see that his anger is boiling and boiling and boiling. And then Sanford at the end, he would get beat. There really was no winning. I mean, it's very clear that Stu is like this sexual sadist. He loved inflicting torture on his victims. Just a really nasty, nasty person. After every single assault, he would whisper into Stu's ear, better the devil you know. Which means it's better to deal with the devil that you know because you don't know what's out there. He would say, besides, you were smuggled over the border, which means if they find out that you're not an American citizen, you're going to get the death penalty. They do things differently in the States. Now, this is not true, but how, how would Sanford know? He would also tell them, and if you don't get the death penalty, or maybe you're waiting for the death penalty in prison, they're going to take turns on you, sometimes a hundred at a time, these prisoners. It will take hours. And he would whisper to him, you will be their dream girl, Sanford. And then to dehumanize him more, after most of these assaults, Stu would force him to sleep naked in the dirty chicken coop floors. Like just with the chicken poop, with the dead chickens, chicken blood everywhere, Sanford's own blood everywhere. And then he'd sit him down, let's write a letter to your family. And went something like this. Dear family, everything Uncle Stuart said that he would do, he has done for me. I am healthy and working hard whenever I am not in school. My school teacher, Mrs. Haberdasher, says Uncle Stu is doing a good job of teaching me everything I need to know about the farm, and she should know. Her whole family is from a long line of farmers in the area. They have made several fortunes in citrus crops and cows. Anyway, I hope you are fine. I am well. Yours, Sanford. The only people that noticed something was weird was his dad and Jesse, his older sister. They were suspicious because this is, I mean, yes, this is his handwriting. It's very clear. But it seems like more of a sponsored ad for Uncle Stu that they never really liked. Nobody in the family except for the sister, you know, Winnie, the mom, really liked the guy. It would just make sense. And the school teacher is not putting any work into his handwriting. It's no better than last year. Which sounds weird, you know, but then like when you're 13, I think every year makes a difference in the way that you write. Mm -hmm. And his words, I mean, the way he makes sentences. Have you ever heard him talk like that? Everything Uncle Stewart said he would do, he has done for me. I mean, maybe schooling is different in the United States, but it just doesn't sound natural. So they've got this like little suspicion, but what can they do? They don't have a phone number for the chicken ranch. The chicken ranch doesn't even have a phone. They're just like, okay, we can just try to write letters back. But every time they would get a response, it was very PR. Very, yeah, Uncle Stu is doing all these amazing things for me. Love it here. Anyway, bye. So one night after Sanford's routine assault and beating, because this was happening practically every day, he was left lying barely unconscious on the floor of the poop-infested chicken coop. When he realizes the lock that is normally on the chicken coop that is locked so that he can't get out is gone. He forgot? He can walk out of there, off the property. I mean, it's a three-acre lot. Like I said, it's not a Picton-style ranch. I mean, he can literally run off the property soon. 
So he's thinking, okay, I can do this. He gets up, he starts seeing stars because he has been that tortured, that beat that day, but he has to keep going. He manages to sneak out of the coop and off the edge of the property. He said that he had this mixture, that he wanted to scream, laugh, but at the same time, scream with just terror, pure terror. He didn't know which one was better. And he starts running. He doesn't know how long he ran, maybe a minute, maybe two, maybe five. But he saw nothing. Just nowhere to escape. Just miles of cactus and weeds. Even if he made it to the police without dying, this is what he was thinking at the time. Eventually, they'll find out the truth about what Uncle Stu has done with me. They would never believe it was against my will. Even though I was a you know growing boy, nobody would ever look at him the same. He would never be accepted by his family, especially his favorite, his older sister, Jessie. That's when you realize there's no going back to my old life. Not anymore. That's how he felt. And he kept asking himself, what will they think of you once they know? And he's talking, he's talking about the rape. And he's saying, once they know, why would they even help me? Once they know, like, why would they even care about a creature like me at all? Like, this is how much shame and just like really backwards thinking it was back in the day. And he kept thinking of the words, better the devil, you know. So he says, okay, I can't do this. Decides to walk back in willingly to the farm well not willingly you know he has been so far so tortured that i'm sure it's not willingly at all he's like i have no other choice lays on the sofa to sleep but he gets woken up by a pot of boiling water poured all over his body no and his own scream woke him up and he thought it was someone else he was like who's screaming and he didn't even realize it was him now, Stu was pissed. Somehow he knew that he tried to escape. Like, I don't know if maybe he was awake. Maybe he saw the whole thing. Maybe he did this all as some big test. Maybe he left it unlocked on purpose. Either way, Sanford's skin is blistering. It's practically raw at this oh point. And he forces Sanford into the chicken coop, dig a hole in the ground. Essentially a grave. When it was big enough for Sanford, Stu pushes him in closes the opening by placing these like giant wooden planks on top and then holds it down with these massive rocks and just left him there for days no food no water blistering skin touching just dirt if you guys have been listening to our youtube channel you know that we're starting a new business well our grandpa is okay and that means we're doing all the hard work we're the unpaid interns so we've been looking at how are we going to sell his art prints we came up with maybe we sell them on this website or this website or we do this with this third party platform but the one thing that has been so confusing is okay if we sell it on multiple platforms do we have to check every single one every single day to see if we got new orders like that's going to be so frustrating so confusing we're trying to look online what's the best way to do this what's the best way to make this simple because shipping really should be the easiest part of the business you should focus on innovating your products and having fun and interacting with customers ShipStation is the answer for you because ShipStation makes it quick, easy, convenient. You can easily import all orders from any sales channel and it automates just about any shipping task. So you spend way less time sorting through the orders and more time doing what you like. 
So the way that ShipStation does it is that they integrate all the selling channels into one simple dashboard so you can seamlessly connect carriers, print shipping labels, and get products out the door fast. I know this is going to sound weird, but it's kind of like having a digital shipping assistant. And over 100,000 sellers use ShipStation in their business. So it's not just me that's super stoked, okay? They work with all the major carriers. They give you exclusive discounts on UPS and USPS shipping so you can compare carriers and choose the best solution for you and your customers. So I know that a lot of you guys are starting small businesses. Trust me, the shipping part was the most boring part. But with ShipStation, it's been so much easier knowing, okay, at least they got my back. And you can also access the same rates usually reserved for Fortune 500 companies without the contracts or the commitments. It's never too early to start prepping for the holiday rush. So get a head start with ShipStation. My listeners can actually use code ROTTEN to get a 60-day free trial just in time for the holidays. That's two months of stress-free holiday shipping for free. And you guys know, holidays for small businesses. That's prime time. So just go to ShipStation.com, click the microphone at the top, and enter in code ROTTEN. ShipStation. Make ship happen. And so he has to learn not how to not panic because he might run out of air. He said he started feeling like he was drowning. Every time he would start panicking, he feels like he's drowning because his lungs aren't getting enough oxygen. I mean, it's pitch black. There's dust all over the place. It feels like a coffin. The only thing that kept him calm was that Uncle Stu needed him to be alive. Because Uncle Stu's not going to do any of the work. He's lazy. He wouldn't even understand hard work if it slapped him in the face. He didn't even know, like, when the chickens get hungry, they peck at you harder. They scream at you. They scream at you so loud that you want to rip off your own ears. So once Sanford, quote-unquote, learned his lesson, he was released from his little coffin And because of this, later, when Stu would go on these trips, sometimes to visit his parents or just whatever he was doing, sometimes he'd be gone for over a week at a time. Stanford would be completely alone on the farm. He would never run away. I think this really just shows how abused this poor child was. Like, truly, I don't think you need chains to be considered captive at all. Yeah. So also, side note, on his burns, Uncle Stu would slather Vaseline, which is one of the worst things you can put on burns, apparently, especially if it's fresh because it traps the heat. So like later, maybe you're doing it for your scarring, but not immediately when it's just like raw skin. So at this point, Sanford is like now 14, 15 years old and Stu's thinking, well, he's not really my type anymore because his type are boys that are 8 to 12 years old. So he goes on the hunt. He starts scouting local parts to find these little kids separated from their parents. But thankfully, he seemed to freak them out a lot because he would say, hey, you want to come see a puppy in my car? They'd all get so excited. And on the way to the car, he would say, hey, can I tickle you? And that's when the kids are like, whoa, 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 this is weird. I should probably get back to my parents. He would always try to lure them in. Oh, I got little rabbits in the car. I got a pony at my house. You want to ride a pony? He was even chased uh, with one of the parents that was holding a knife that was like, get away from my son. But he apparently didn't care. And it seemed like the police didn't care because he didn't stop. He still kept looking. He would disappear for days at a time, sometimes a week. And then he would always come back relaxed and happy. That's what Sanford said. He would leave just anxious, annoyed, like he had this like energy he needed to get out. Then he would come back like he just got back from vacation. So, I mean, we can only imagine what he's doing out there. And I think that's why there's a lot of speculation that there were far more victims than the ones found on the farm later. Now, one day, Stu comes home from one of these big trips. Ecstatic. Oh, Sanford. 
I have a present for you. Come over here. I have a present. So Sanford's rushing over. So he's like, I can't get beat up. Like, I gotta go ASAP. Looks out, and Stu's holding out a silver bucket. We'll go on. Take a look. So he takes a quick peek, and immediately he starts screaming a little. Ugh! It looked like a, like a dead animal with, like, really long hair or something. Almost like a dead animal with a, with a wig on. What is that, roadkill? And he's, like, gagging because it was bloody. We'll take a closer look. So he does. And he realizes it's not roadkill. And it's not a wig. It's a true scalp on a bloody mass. It was a severed head inside the bucket. It was just a head? Just the head. The rest of the body was in the trunk. To make matters worse, it was the severed head of a boy that didn't look that much older than Sanford. Maybe like a year older. Oh my gosh. Stu's like laughing. Isn't that great? Do you want to hear what happened? Well, he shot him. Of course it was self-defense. He was trying to steal from me. I thought. I thought he was going to kill me. So I killed him first. I smashed up his hands too. Because I read in one of those detective novels that that's how the police are going to ID the body. You have to take the head off too. It's going to make it so much harder. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take this head, start a bonfire, and burn it till it's all ash and little bones. Then, the whole time for hours, you're going to stoke the flames, okay? Because we can't let it go out. Then, once you're done with that, you're going to smash up the ashes with a hammer. And we're just going to scatter them. Maybe we'll let the chickens eat it. We'll see. Now, Sanford's gagging. He's like throwing up. He has a conscious. He's like, I can't do this. But his dad is, or his uncle is like, you better. You better or it'll be your head. So they end up, you know, doing exactly what I said with the head. They throw the rest of the headless body into a ditch. Now, the worst part is Stu's plan worked. The body was found, but it was never identified even to this day. So the only thing that they could really pin down on the body was that this was a young boy that was probably Mexican. So the news and the police, they called him this young boy that was murdered, the headless Mexican. Wow. Which is just fucked up, okay? Like, are you kidding me? Now, the speculation is that Stu did not do this in self-defense, okay? The speculation is that he tried to kidnap this young boy, but because he was much older and probably quicker and stronger than what Stu's used to, because, by the way, Stu's like, what, 20 years old? He wears suits. He's got manicured hands all the time. Like, you really think that this guy is just buff? Like, you think he's really running a farm? No. So this kid is fighting back, and Stu feels like, oh, shoot, I gotta kill him or else he's gonna tell someone. So he shoots him multiple times. Or maybe it was just anger. Maybe it was like, how dare this guy try not to be kidnapped? Now, Stu keeps telling Sanford, now that we got rid of the body, we need an alibi. This is the most important part of the crime. And he's like teaching him all these things about how to evade the police. He starts referencing Hollywood movies, but also, you know, detective novels. We got to go to grandparents' house. So they get there. And that's when they decide to tell both of them everything that happened. Now, Stu took the liberty to lie when he saw fit, which was practically the whole time. So the story that they told the grandparents was something like this, okay? And George, George is the grandpa. He was the only one that was confused. Wait, okay. So you're telling me, Stu, that you felt like he was going to kill you, this little boy, and so you shot him. Yes, Dad. I shot him right in the head. I saw that he was alive still. So I shot him four more times in the head with my pistol. So you shot this young boy five times in the head. Yes, but he kept moving. After 
Five shots close range to the head with a pistol? Yes, precisely. So I had to put him out of his misery. I put my pistol down, I grabbed my rifle, and I shot him in the chest. And then, Sanford, tell him what you did. Uh, uh, what, what did I do? So Sanford picks up the axe and hits him in the head three times. Go ahead, Sanford, tell Grandpa what you did. Yeah, I guess I wanted to put him out of his misery. And Grandpa's like, so you're saying, after being shot in the head five times, close range, by a pistol, a rifle to the chest, this guy was still alive? Well, he was a strong boy. So we shot him four more times to the head again. So you hit him with an axe, you shot him like ten times, close range, and then you had to decapitate him? Yeah, well, and this is uh, what Stu allegedly said, that um, it's weird but Mexicans are really the superior race, I tell you. Like implying that they had to keep doing this because he was strong, because he was Mexican. I don't even know what to say to that, okay? Like this is just the type of, di- the type of dude that we're dealing with. Now, Grandpa George, he's shocked at the whole story. I mean, it's absurd. Like imagine hearing this story and be like, you know what? I totally believe it. Grandma, on the other hand, she's freaking out. My precious boy, how scary that must have been. I am so glad that filthy little thief didn't hurt you. Didn't hurt a hair on the top of your head. Nothing happens at that point. I mean, the grandparents don't try to do an intervention. They don't try to get to the bottom of it. They just let them go back home. They formed this alibi and the body of that little boy was found. They never identified him. They never found the head. So, I mean, they're off the hook. They're living their best lives. That's when Walter Collins, the nine-year-old, disappears. He lives nearby? Yes. Now, it's also said that um, Stu had briefly worked at like a grocery store where Walter Collins' mom used to shop at. So the whole Walter Collins situation happens. Nobody is even suspecting Stu because the police are so busy running these incredibly psychologically innovative advanced tests on the new Walter. So and, did yes. Do everyone anyone know what happened to this new kid? The fake Walter. Oh yeah, yeah, they find out. I'm about to tell you. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So the police chief, they're like, Yeah, that woman is bonkers. That's why we put her in the psychiatric ward. There's actually a movie made on it, uh, with Angelina Jolie playing Christine, the mom. And it's this whole thing is going to come full circle at the end. So just hold on to your tits, right? You know, there didn't you talk about a story very similar? Yes, there are so many. There was one with a uh, Bobby Dunbar. There was, I believe, another one too. Yeah. So the son was missing, and hit another one pretend to be the son. Yeah. What the heck? <laughs> I don't even. What is going on with the world? <laughs> okay. It's, do you think that still happens today or you think this is definitely before the times of dna probably before the times of dna right because right, like yeah. now how could you do that exactly but also i mean how do you think that moms are not gonna realize exactly that's what i'm saying like i did not know how bad it was until my sister had a kid i mean she realizes every little thing that sophie like if i you know put yeah. on a different the same like brand of onesie but i change it for her because she was at our house we were babysitting she'll know oh really she'll be like oh yeah, yeah. did she throw up or something huh. i'm like what the heck how are you this good it's so weird well, so, i feel like if you throw a baby sophie into a <laughs> baby room you could never I lost her in two seconds <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which one are you against? it's funny because it's like there's no asian babies in the room <laughs> sophie's the only asian baby and you're like i still can't find her i can't mm, find it I, I, don't I don't see it <laughs> <laughs> i don't see it <laughs> so when they finally 
put her into the psychiatric ward. They've got this little boy now. They're like, what do we do with this little boy? We got to put her in, fo- put him in foster care or something. And that's when he starts talking to the police. Hey, uh, by the way, like, I don't know if this is going to cause some trouble or something. I'm not Walter Collins. They're like, what? I'm Arthur Hutchins. What? I'm also 12 years old, not nine. Well, my mom had recently died. I'm from Iowa, and I was sent to live with my dad and my stepmom, but I think that they're evil. I didn't really want to live with them. Now, this story is really sad, too, because, like, imagine how how difficult it was for this child, right? And he decided to run away from his dad and his stepmom, and he ends up in Illinois, where he's trying to look for work, and this guy stops him. Oh, my God. Are you Walter? They're looking for you. Because it was on the national news at this point. And the stranger just... <laughs> and he's like, who's Walter? Oh, he said, oh, you're not Walter. Oh, sorry, sorry. It's this missing little boy from California. His mom is just heartbroken. They're looking for Walter. Anyway, have a good day, little kid. And he walks away. Just an overly nice dude. Yeah. So then Arthur's like, that's strange. What the heck? Then he gets stopped by another person. Who's like, are you Walter? He's like, I'm not. And they're like, that's crazy. I mean, I could have sworn you look just like him. So Arthur tells the police he didn't really want to get a job. He didn't want to be with his stepmom and his dad. He thought that he could just start fresh as Walter Collins with Walter Collins's mom in California. I mean, this poor kid, like imagine the rough conditions he must have been in to think that this was a good idea. Just completely starting over, pretending to be somebody else. So once this got out, Christine was released from the hospital But the real Walter was never found. Now, technically, legally speaking, Walter Collins was not a confirmed victim of Stu or the Chicken Ranch. But according to Sanford's side of the story, he was. And I think most people believe that he was. Later, there is a confession. But legally speaking, this is just Sanford's point of Sanford's point of view. Mm -hmm. So Stu had pulled up and Sanford could already hear that he was with this little boy. So he's like, oh, shoot. And the little boy's like, where are the rabbits? Yeah, yeah, we have some rabbits. You're going to see them later. Wait, is this the ranch you were talking about? Because where are the ponies? And it said that Walter started freaking out because he started realizing something's off. Like he promised to take me to this ranch with a lot of like grass and trees and we're going to ride ponies and like pet the pet rabbits together. But all I see are just sand and chicken coops and it's stinky here and it's miserable. So Uncle Stu gets down to Walter's length and says, It's time to tell you the truth. Your mom hates you. She hates your guts. She's sick of you. Doesn't want you around anymore. And throws him into one of the chicken coops. And all night long, Sanford could hear the little boy's screams. He said he felt like a million pounds heavier. There was nothing that he could do to help. He just hoped that Stu would just let him go soon. For the next little while, Sanford started getting more confused because he's like, every time that I hear Walter in pain, I'm in pain knowing that this little boy is in pain. But at the same time, I'm not physically in pain. So it's like a little bit of a relief. Stu isn't torturing me. So I kind of I feel miserable when I hear him. But at the same time, I'm like, oh, well, thank God it's not me. So he starts feeling so guilty. I mean, he's only like 14. He's so guilty, doesn't even know what to do. He briefly sees Walter a few times, or what used to be Walter, because now he just had flesh exposed everywhere, deep bruises. His eyes were two times bigger than usual, and he was constantly darting his eyes back and forth. So Sanford said either he felt like he was blinded, had lost his vision, or because of maybe brain trauma, he was having so much trouble focusing his eyes. Oh Couldn't even see where Sanford was when he came into the room. 
It's said that Walter told Sanford, "Can you please tell Stu that I'm sorry? Maybe he'll stop if he knows I'm sorry. Can you tell him I don't even care about the ponies anymore? I'll just do whatever he wants if he just lets me go back home." And he even said, "Are you mad at me too?" And Sanford said, "No, I'm not." We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast that you need to check out right now, immediately once you're done with this one, because it is one of those that you're like, wow, I am so glad that I found this. My favorite thing about this podcast is the fact that they do these weekly interviews with heavy hitting guests. And you're thinking, well, what kind of guests? That's the coolest part. It's always like a different type of guest. So, for example, the episodes that I've been obsessed with this week is number 527, Undercover in North Korea. I know you guys loved our North Korean crime episodes. This one is even more in depth. Someone was undercover in North Korea for 10 years trying to infiltrate their illicit arms trade. It's a lot of information that I have never heard anywhere else. Then we've got episode 495, Surprising Solutions to Overthinking. Listen, if you know me, you know that I was waiting for this podcast, okay? The show covers stories like how a professional art forger somehow made millions of dollars while being chased by the feds and the mafia. Jordan's also done an episode about birth control and how it can alter the partners that we pick, which I thought was so fascinating. The podcast covers a lot, but one of my favorite things is that Jordan Harbinger, his ability to just pull useful pieces of advice from his guests is kind of out of this world. So I promise you, you're going to find something useful that you can apply to your own life, and you're just going to be fascinated by this podcast. We really enjoy this show, and we think that you will as well. There's so much there. Check out jordanharbinger.com slash start for some episode recommendations or search for the Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. So one day, Grandma makes a surprise visit. I mean, it's weird because it seems like Grandma Louise has an understanding of what's going on with Stu. Like, Stu is not a regular, you know, regular schmegular dude. Like, he's a pedophile. Like, she's, she seems like she's catching on to that. But I don't know to what extent. Or I don't know if she thought, oh, his pedophilia days are over now. Because she makes a surprise visit and Stu is in the chicken coop with Walter. And Sanford starts freaking out. He doesn't know what to tell them because if he tells them what's going on, I mean, he's screwed. Stu's going to kill him. So he thinks, I'm just going to kind of lead her to the chicken coop. Because she's like, where's Stu? Uh, in the chicken coop. Then hopefully she'll walk in on him doing whatever he was doing to Walter and stop this madness. So grandma walks in, sees that Stu, her baby boy, is holding a little boy captive and she starts yelling. How dare you? What are you thinking? I thought you were over this, not here. You said you know his mom. How dare you? And it seems like she's a bit more pissed because her life savings is on the branch versus there's a little boy being tortured by her own son. Like imagine Mm. the feelings most moms would go through. Like it would just be... I mean, you got to turn them in. But at the same time, how did you raise someone like this? You start blaming yourself, right? She's just pissed. Because this is her business. Yeah, we put our money on the line and you're just forking it up. And he immediately starts crying. No, mommy, it's not like that. I just snapped by the time that I came to it. And I realized what I was doing. He was already chained up in here. And I don't know how it happened. I think it's all the stress of the ranch. Mommy, please don't be mad at me. I promise I'll bring him back. And I promise I'll make sure that he doesn't tell his mom anything. And that is when Grandma Louise changes her tune. You will do no such thing. Get the axe. 
No way. This was、uh, told by Sanford and Grandma Louise would actually confess to the murder of Walter Collins. Wow. The quietest way is with an axe. Each one of us is to take turns, so that none of us talk. Do you hear me, Sanford? They walk into the chicken coop. Thankfully, Walter was asleep. Grandma Louise brings the axe up and slams it onto his head three times, then hands it to Sanford, without crying. Nothing like just passing the salt at the dinner table is the vibe. We go on, and he refuses. So Stu grabs the axe from his mom and throws it at Sanford's arm till he has this gaping wound. And says, "We will kill you unless you do this." And he kept telling himself, "It's okay, Sanford. Walter's already gone." So he hits him with the axe, and then Stu takes over and starts going to town. Afterwards, Grandma and Stu they just prance back to normal. They walk into the house. They're like, "What should we have for dinner?" They force Sanford to stay out there and dig a grave. And bury Walter. Now, before Grandma Louise leaves, she has to promise you're not going to try this again, okay? At least not here. And he promises on his soul. But sure enough, a few months later, he finds the Winslow brothers: twelve-year-old Louis Winslow, ten-year-old Nelson Winslow. Now, they were brothers that were hanging out at a local yacht club where their、uh, parents were members. So these are some rich kids' kids,、Holy、or rich people's kids, cow, right? Yeah. Oh my god! I don't even know what you do at a yacht club. Do you just like bounce around from each other's yachts? So like they t- do a measuring tape <laughs> to see whose yacht is longer, <laughs> and that means their pee wee is smaller. <laughs> <laughs> the longer the yacht, the shorter the wee wee. Okay, <laughs> that's the new logic here. Now they get lured by this nice, friendly man who's like, "Hey, do you want to ride a pony? I've got so many ponies." Now it said that this, you know, these brothers they were really. Trusting and adventurous, like they loved having fun. They loved just being happy, and like they're like the little kids, the life of the party. And like I said at the time, being polite to strangers was the norm. Versus now, where you start screaming at them. Like back then, it was like, no, if you're from a classy family, you have to have manners even to strange men who approach you. So their parents immediately start freaking out when they don't come home, and the police are on the lookout. Before they could make any progress, though. They get a letter in the mail. Dear mother and dad, we are going to Mexico to make a lot of money making yachts and airplanes. A woman gave us something to eat. Don't worry, we'll be okay. Bizarre. What? They're young. Why are they going to Mexico? They don't need the money. They never expressed wanting to work. And like, why Mexico? And who's this lady who's feeding them? Then they get another piece of mail. We're actually doing this because we thought it would garner us fame and attention. Don't look for us. It was just bizarre. Mm-hmm. But the police, they were like, ah, see, it's perfect. We don't need to look for them. They're、um, they're in Mexico building airplanes, and they want to be famous. So we're good. Job is done. Now Stu killed the two brothers. Now the worst part of all of this is that Stu told Sanford, "I'm gonna let them go, and I will let them go if they come up with a story that they're gonna stick to, that they're gonna tell their parents." So Sanford is so excited because he has been slowly trying to root for their release, you know, for weeks now. Gets their hopes up. Gets Sanford's hopes up. Sanford's telling the oldest one, "Hey, you gotta stick to the story, okay? He's gonna let you go. Just tell him exactly what story you're gonna tell your parents." But then, when he's called into the chicken coop, Stu forces Sanford to watch while he hits them with axes, and Sanford's forced to dig a hole for them. But he knew that they weren't dead yet. 
because they were making noise. I mean, they were moaning. And he said, like, that moan, he will never forget. And as he's digging, Stu looks at him and says, yeah, if you keep crying, I'm going to make you sleep in there on top of the dead boy's graves. So keep digging. So he puts him in the graves, still alive, and they get buried alive. At this point, Jessie Clark, Sanford's older sister in Canada, she decides it's finally pay her brother a visit. Okay, she had saved up all of her money. I mean, back then, like I said, travel is so expensive. She knew deep down that something was wrong. Even her dad knew. And the dad just refused to stand up to his wife, their mother, Winnie. Like I said, she had the very similar personality to Stu and Grandma Louise. Mm -hmm. Like everybody else just kind of fell into the background. They ran the whole town. Like that's the vibe they're giving. So she decides to make a surprise trip to California, not let Stu know much in advance that she's coming. Because a lot of odd things were just, I mean, none of this was making sense. And when she gets to the ranch, initially, everything's sunshine and rainbows. I mean, it's beautiful. Uncle Stu cooks for them every day. He takes some sightseeing. They go through Hollywood, tells her little stories here and there. But slowly, the cracks start showing. Why wouldn't Stu let them in the room alone for even two seconds? Uncle Stu was always hovering over them. Why was her brother refusing to make eye contact with her? Why did her brother never talk about school or any of the things that he talked about in the letters? Why does he look so sick? And she wanted to visit his school to like meet the teachers to see what the United States schools are like. And they just come up with these excuses. So one night while Uncle Stu is asleep, she wakes up, sneaks Sanford out of the house and they start whispering. And Sanford tells her everything minus the sexual assaults. He's killing little boys. He had me help him. I killed a little boy because of him. We buried them right in the chicken coop. He's going to kill me eventually. I know it. When I become a liability, because that's what Uncle Stu always talked about, assets and liabilities. When I become a liability, he's going to kill me. And you can't help me, Jesse, because he's going to kill you too. And Jesse's shocked. She's like trying to absorb all this information. She's like, what are you talking about? No, no matter what happens, I'm going to get you the fork out of here. We're going to escape. We're going to go back to Canada. It's going to be amazing, okay? I have some cash saved up. I'll find you a job. You can go back. You don't even have to live with mom. I moved out. You can live with me. So they come up with this whole little plan. But the only way it works is if she sneaks him cash, she has to go back to Canada first. Act like nothing's wrong. Then when Uncle Stu goes on one of his little weekend bingers, whatever you call it, benders. He's going to sneak out with the money, get driven across the border. Jesse already had people lined up to drive him across the border. It's going to be perfect. But when Jesse gets back to Canada, she can't resist waiting. She's like, I can't do this. So she calls the Canadian police to contact the United States because there was an illegal immigrant in the U.S. that was smuggled in for work. It's also said that Stu had actually tried to kill Jesse while she was in California. She had, he had punched her in the face at the grandparents' house because she kept demanding that she take Sanford. She was like, I'm going to just take him. It's been so long. I'm going to live with him now. I have my own place. Why can't I take him? He's my brother. You can't tell me what to do with my brother. So Stu punches her in the face and Grandma Louise kept telling him, not this one, not this one, Stuart. You no. can't do anything to this one. You want to keep your freedom, don't you? So it seems, I don't know if maybe Jesse was special to Winnie or to someone, or they thought that maybe he would be caught, he would be arrested if something happened to her. Everyone knew she was in California. She said, not this one. Not not this this one. one. Not because this was her grandchild. Because, I mean, this was her grandchild. Not this one. You want to keep your freedom, don't you? 
Now, Sanford had no plans to use his sister's money to leave because he felt like she would never forgive him for all of the things that he did on the farm. But she could forgive him for not escaping. And on top of that, he just felt like no one in his family would love him after they found out that he had been sodomized. But Uncle Stu was freaking out because Grandma Louise kept telling him, I don't care what that girl Jessie said to you because the look in her eyes, she knows something. Or at least she thinks she knows something. And she's not the type of girl that's just going to let that go. She's vindictive. She's like a bad dog with a good memory. We have to do something. We have to come up with a backup plan. We've got to pack our stuff. We've got a plan to go to Canada away from the ranch. So around the same time, the LAPD get a tip that there's an illegal worker child on a chicken farm in Wineville who's terrified for his life, allegedly. So the Jesse, the sister, she had made the call and the police took it really seriously. So they were like, what? This is like such a very specific, strange tale. A Canadian citizen smuggled across the border, first forced to work on a chicken farm by his own uncle. Like, that's so weird. So they head straight to the farm and they find 15-year-old Sanford completely alone. They're like, hey, uh, can you tell us what's going on? Are you alone? Yeah. Where's the owner? Not here. Well, who's the owner? Uh, Gordon Norcott? Okay, well, let's just wait for him. So they sit around. Two hours pass. And they can't shake this feeling that Sanford's acting weird. He keeps rambling, asking them questions, like nonsensical questions. Just bizarre stuff. So they, they just keep asking him, what's wrong with you? Why are you being this way? Like, why are you so weird? What's going on? And Sanford slowly starts breaking down and says, are you sure I can trust you? Can I trust you? And he starts telling them little bits and bits and pieces of what happened on the farm. Now, I don't know. I don't know if it was the trauma. I don't know if it was like uh, he was just splurting things out or if he had been trained to talk like this. But he had only mentioned the bits and parts where he had murdered kids with Stu, but forgot to mention that he was forced to, that he too was a victim. Mm-hmm. So Stu had fled and was supposedly, I'm supposed, to, I'm supposed to stall you guys. And if I don't, he said that he would climb up on a very tall tree and shoot me dead in front of you guys if I fail. Oh, so Stu, oh, wow. He was on the run. Yeah. On the- right when the poli- the, he heard the police come in. So they're like, now we got, it's been two hours. We've been sitting around. You've been asking us bullshit questions for two hours. We don't know where this guy is anymore. Are you kidding? And now you're saying you guys murdered people in the chicken coop? We got to bring you in. So they immediately bring him into the police station and they start questioning him like he is a serial killer. Now the higher up detective walks in and he is pissed. He looks at Sanford. He looks at the rest of his team and says, how dare you get the fork out of here? This kid is young, terrified. Look how sick he looks. He's pale. He's malnourished. He's underweight. He was forced to work 12-hour days every single day. That's what he told you. You think he's a part of this? You think he's the brains behind this, you idiots? So he's like, we got to treat him differently. And he's like, listen, Sanford, it's going to be okay. So Sanford starts opening up to him. And at the end, he asks, do I have to go to jail with the rest of the people? Can I just stay in isolation? And he's like, isolation? People normally don't like isolation. It'll be nice to, you know, talk to some people. You're going to juvie anyway. And he's like, I I just don't know if I can stop the bleeding this time. The detective's like, what are you talking about? What bleeding? That's when he realized that Sanford had been sodomized repeatedly for the past two and a half years. So they rush him to the hospital for a checkup. And he's pissed. I mean, the detective is like yelling at his lower ranks. Like, how did you not even take him to the hospital? How did you not catch on to these things? Are you guys absolute idiots? 
So the doctors, they document all the injuries left to his body. They nourished him back to health. Meanwhile, the police are tracking down Stu and his mom, find them in Canada, had them arrested, and before they could be extradited, they confessed to everything. Stu's like, yes, I killed five people. So apparently there's like one we don't know about. So we've got, you know, the little boy that had this, that was decapitated. Then we had Walter Collins, the two brothers. And then um, it's said that it was probably another boy that was Mexican. But it's speculated that he killed upwards of 20. Because we don't know who else outside of the farm. And look at the police <laughs> back then like they really didn't care so louise she confesses to killing walter collins now the confession was never properly documented which meant that when they got to the united states they recanted everything immediately and it could not be legally used against them so they were gonna have two separate trials I love cereal. I'm going to say it. When I was a kid, the best moments of my life was when my Korean mother would let me go into the supermarket and pick out whatever just full of sugar cereal that I was allowed. And I would just pour it into this big bowl, not knowing that it was just pure sugar that I was consuming. Now as an adult, I don't have that luxury, okay? I got to worry about my health. I got to make sure that I have energy for the day. I don't have this crazy sugar crash. I'm trying to cut down on carbs and unhealthy food. And I always felt in the back of my mind, cereals are for kids, you know? That's not an adult food. I got to drink a protein shake. It's really boring. <laughs> Until I found Magic Spoon. I am obsessed with their cereal. Like, it's so good. Magic Spoon is literally the taste of the cereals that you know and love without all the after effects. Because it's got zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, which is insane. And trust me, it doesn't taste like one of those like weird protein breakfasts. It's got only four net grams of carbs in each serving. And here's the coolest part, only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. I mean, it's super cool because I feel like cereal is also an easy breakfast. You just throw it into a bowl, almond milk, oat milk, whatever your heart pleases. Sometimes I just eat it straight out of the box. I'm not even going to lie to you. They've got amazing flavors, but I highly recommend their variety pack. It's like the perfect balance. They've got the cocoa, fruity, frosted, and peanut butter. Did you know you can mix the peanut butter and the cocoa? And it tastes like a peanut butter cup. And you're like, am I really starting my morning like this? But you don't even feel guilty. So go to magicspoon.com slash rotten to grab a variety pack and try it today. Make sure to use our promo code rotten at checkout because that saves you $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is very confident in their products. So it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. So remember to get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash rotten and use that code rotten to save $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Meanwhile, Sanford took the police to the graves, and that's where it got weird. So inside of the chicken coops, they should be finding relatively fresh corpses. But when they dig up the graves, they find fragments of bones, not even enough to make up full bodies. So does that mean that maybe Stu went in later to move the bodies? When they were tested, there was residue of quicklime, which just like dissolves flesh. So, th okay, that makes sense. But Sanford's like, no, I swear we never like put anything when we put the bodies in. Like we never dumped any sort of mixture in. We, it was just always soil. I'm the one that did it. He didn't even have, like I know. 
So the speculation really is that Stu went back once, you know, Jesse started putting on the heat and his grandma was like, you got to do something. Then he poured in some quicklime. He also took some bodies out, discarded them or buried them elsewhere. There was blood and clothing found that corroborated Sanford's account of things. There was also the axe with still human blood on it. Now, DNA testing was not good enough to identify if that was Walter Collins's blood at the time. But I mean, yeah. So Stu's trial is first and he claimed he was his own attorney, by the way. And it was like a really big show because he wanted to grill himself. You know how like a you know how sometimes the defense attorneys will grill the defendant to make it look like I'm not trying to make it easy on you. I'm going to ask you all the questions. I'm going to turn up the heat so that the jury he would like grill himself. What? He'd be like, so what were you doing that night? And he'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. like I was uh, I was just doing this that night. Like, can you imagine? No way. Yeah, he was like grilling himself. He claimed that his dad sexually abused him since he was 10 years old. The whole family has denied this. But I don't know. That's not to say that we forgive him for everything he did in his adult years, you know. But like, yeah, we can have sympathy for him as a kid. I'm not discounting it. It's just, yeah. So that's what he states. And then he was found guilty. Sentenced to death, but he wouldn't be hung until two years later. So while he's in prison for two years, he reaches out to Christine Collins, the mother of nine-year-old Walter, and says, listen, you're more than welcome to come on by and ask me whatever questions you want. Decide to visit me. I can talk to you. Give you the closure that you desperately need for your son. And so she goes and he refuses to talk to her. He sits there in silence, refusing to talk to her. This is like his last act of just sick torture because this is what she needs. She needs closure. She needs answers. And he won't. So two years after the trial, he was hung. And uh, this little bit he requested to be blindfolded because he asked the guard, is it going to hurt after everything like he's done? It's like... Then Grandma Louise, she confessed to the murder of Walter Collins. She was given life in prison with parole And she was released after 14 years. She did die like a year and a half later. But, you know. Now, because of all of the bad press, Wineville changed their name to Mary Loma, California now. And Sanford Clark, he had really bad survivor's guilt for the longest time. I think until the day he died, honestly. He married a woman by the name of June. They stayed married for 55 years. Really helped him through his depression. They adopted two beautiful kids together. Um, Sanford was terrified of having biological children because he didn't know what was in his genes he didn't want to pass it on he felt like his uncle had it his grandma had it even his mom had that gene and he's like what if it's in me i did do these things sure i mean i was threatened for my life but i did do them at the end of the day like that's how he was feeling and when one of his kids jerry clark was 17 years old this is the um the one that helped with the book they were in the car and sanford pulled over and said, Jerry, did you hear about the nurse that disappeared? Well, her body was found not too far from our house. And I feel like it's only a matter of time till they start comparing it to other cases. Now, at this point, Jerry, 17 years old, had no idea about his dad's past. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay, what does that have to do with us? If they start pulling up records, they're going to come across an uncle of mine and me. And just told him the two and a half years that took place on the chicken farm. Because he said, better you hear from me than the press. Oh, he's saying that because he has this criminal record. Yeah. They're going to think, was it him? Ah. 
Wow. He went on to fight six years in World War II. He won an award for civic duty. And even after all of that, even after never reoffending, not that he ever offended, you know, he was yeah. not charged or anything, never doing anything bad, he still felt so much shame and guilt and he felt like he was evil. He had flashbacks and nightmares for the rest of his life. And it's like he just, he kept questioning himself, like, am I even a good person? Even though the rest of his life, all he really did, like all the notable things, like he did everything right. He just kept questioning, am I even a good person? And that's the story of the Wineville chicken coop murders. I don't know how to feel about this one. I mean, I feel like I would go harder on the police and I'm like, did they really do this in the 20s and the 30s? Like, is this how police work happened? They do these like bogus tests of like, let me drop you off at the edge of the town. And if you make it back home, you're it. (laughs) What? It's bizarre. What are your thoughts on this one? Let me know in the comments. And I hope you guys enjoyed. Stay tuned for Sunday because we're kicking off Spooktober with a spooky mini-sode. And I'll see you guys then. Bye.